welcome to the seventh episode of the Azimuth Podcast. My name is Kimberly McNabb, and as always, I am joined by my husband, Barrett McNabb. First, we will discuss origins, challenges, and solutions to the Russian-Ukraine conflict. Then we will discuss the push for green energy, and in the third segment of this episode, we will continue our coverage of presidential candidates by discussing the candidacy of Vivek Ramaswamy. During the GOP debate, Vivek's thoughts on Ukraine were a little controversial. We did a full breakdown, which will be an end screen thumbnail, and we suggest you check it out. Vivek said he would basically give up parts of Ukraine to Russia in exchange for a promise that Ukraine will never be a part of NATO. While this sparked outrage among some of the other GOP candidates, especially Nikki Haley, whom we covered in a previous Azimuth podcast episode. However, no one really seemed to offer a solid solution to the crisis. So later in this segment, Baird, who was an infantry officer in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as a foreign area officer, will offer his thoughts on how to end the Russian-Ukraine conflict for good. But first, let's ask, how did we get here? Well, Kimberly, like most problems, especially with foreign issues, problems did not develop overnight and cannot all solely be blamed on any one person. They really started at the fall of the Soviet Union. When all the republics started separating, because you know the, the 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 Soviet Union was a was a block of, of different nations that that were together, um, as they started pulling apart and forming their own new nations, the newly formed Ukraine found itself with the third most stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world in in 1991. And in 1994, in order to get Ukraine to give up their large stockpile of former Soviet nuclear weapons and give them back to Russia, um, the Budapest Accords were signed. And Ukraine did give their nuclear weapons back to Russia on the condition that certain security guarantees were met. And those include that the weapons that Ukraine gave up would never be used against them that they would have guaranteed territorial integrity, and that uh, if anybody were to attack them, that they could appeal to the United Nations and signatures of the treaty would would uh, actively guarantee their territorial integrity. Um, one of the other ones, it's kind of minor, is um, that uh, that they wouldn't be able to be pressured or, or coerced into doing something they didn't want to do. But let's just focus on the big ones. Nuclear weapons w- would never be used on their country and that they would have guaranteed territorial integrity. And Russia is a signator to that. So my my big thing is the this this invasion, we're gonna keep keep going into it, but my my big takeaway of this is no country is ever going to give up their nuclear weapons again. Um, just just never going to give them up because uh, it's a guarantee, um, or it's not a guarantee that if you give up your nuclear weapons, that you're going to keep your territory. Um, and like, how are you going to defend yourself? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the ultimate way to do so. Yeah, and that's why a lot of times people have nuclear weapons is is to, um, you know, more defensive. Hey, look, if you attack me, I'm going to attack you back, and and we don't uh, want that mutually assured destruction. Mad. So, um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the. You know the the deeper background 
on it. But then Russia was further emboldened in 2008 uh, due to President Bush's weak reaction to, to Putin invading Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a native Georgian, the state, I really had a facepalm moment when a few of my fellow state residents freaked out. Yeah, I um, I remember when this, this happened, I was uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia, um, working in an operations uh, and I, uh, office, and, and I saw that that had happened. And I actually heard uh, people out in the street that were, you know, Russia attacked Georgia. Why isn't the United States, you know, defending our borders? And, and I, had to, I had to tell them, Georgia the country, not not the state of Georgia. So um, anyway, it, it was a, just a humorous need. Everybody needs to learn their geography. Um, but uh, Obama further com- uh, compounded uh, the tense relations by his reset, his reset with the um, Hillary Clinton doing that reset button that was not reset in, in Russian, um, in relations in scrapping former President Bush's plans for a missile defense shield in Eastern Europe. Obama also opposed sending aid when Putin uh, took uh, Crimea in 2014 at the tail end of the Sochi um, uh, Winter Olympics. Um, and, it, you know, obviously uh, when people um, in masks, black masks, came across uh, and started occupying Crimea and, um, and Putin was like, I don't know who these people are. We're not sending any any uh, foreign, you know, any of our forces into uh, into Crimea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not us. Um, and then, you know, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it just goes goes to show that, uh, you know, Mark Twain's famous quote, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often does rhyme. Um, and so with the same thing of um, uh, Russia was not going to be attacking uh, Ukraine, um, and, and this is all just made up and it's not going to happen. And, and we're like, look, yes, yes, it is. So the uh, Putin also had a further reason to view the U.S. as a weak and, and kind of a paper tiger with the Biden's administration's poorly planned withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, just an, an absolute debacle. And it really did hurt our standing uh, throughout the world because people couldn't trust us. I mean, when we pull out of a, of, you know, a, a country that we've been fighting this, the same thing for, for Vietnam, um, you know, as soon as we pulled out and, and then 1974, the North Koreans, uh, sorry, the North Vietnamese came, uh, down and, and took over Saigon, took over the whole of the country, had to evacuate the embassy. Um, we just, you have, have to understand, you know, what, what it is. And, and we actually did a, a full episode on the Afghan withdrawal. We'll put it in, in the link um, uh, at the, the end of the video as well. But it just, uh, you know, there's second and third order effects to everything. Um, and it just, it just, it's devastating. But, but now we have, we have where we are in Ukraine. And um, yeah. Well, it's interesting that Putin did not try anything under President Trump's Good administration. Point. Remember Trump telling Putin that it would be a bad idea to invade Ukraine? Well, when a bad guy like Putin listens to you, that, that should kind of tell you something. Yeah, it, it should. And, and you know, the, the thing is, 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 you know, he told Putin, look, this is going to be a bad idea. Don't do it. Um, and, and Putin didn't. Um, I mean, it, you know, just, you know, we we still had forces positioned all around, but I mean, it's it's just uh, it's just sad that uh, um, that geopolitics is is just um, you know being 
ram through uh, with the Biden administration. I mean, it's just the geopolitical failure after failure. And, um, you know, it's just the world watches and, and the world watches and and the world and there's countries adversaries taking notes uh, mm-hmm. like China. Yep. So, Barrett, um, what are some challenges that you see to resolving the conflict? The United States has been of huge support to Ukraine, but we also have to ask, what are Russia's allies doing to assist them? Well, you know, in our episode where we talked about um, the credit downgrade, and I came up with um, my new term, the um, the, the dark bricks. And, you know, currently BRICS um, in its in its purest form uh, was uh, coined by um, uh, Vanguard. And it's for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and then South um, Africa was added for the for the S. Uh, they just recently had their meeting about two weeks ago. And they've invited a whole host of um, countries to, uh, to, to join the, the original BRICS. And so I don't know if they're just going to call it alphabet, uh, after that, <laughs> well, because we got plenty of those going around, we, exactly, plenty of those going around, but interestingly, true to my, uh, uh, prediction, a lot of the dark bricks, um, were invited to, mm-hmm. uh, to the, uh, to join the BRICS nations. And, um, uh, you know, so that's, um, kind of a an interesting. I mean, the the new bricks that or the the dark bricks that that I had talked about was Belarus, um, Russia, uh, Iran, um, China, and Saudi Arabia, and a lot of those countries were invited um, to uh, to. And Iran just got a bunch of money to play with too. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, obviously that happened. Um, it, it happened prior to the anniversary of nine eleven, but it was announced. It was announced right. um, on 9-11, which that's bad, bad form. Um, but still, uh, you know, I mean, this is getting a little off topic, but but it's it's uh, going to encourage nations to continue to kidnap American citizens mm-hmm. um, in in order for monetary gain or for uh, trading, um, you know, prisoners that 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 we've taken. Um, the, the difference is, is is we capture criminals and or spies and most of, of these bad actor nations capture civilians right and and so so we're trading bad people for civilians um, and and on top of that we gave them a tip uh, for you know six billion dollars um, and we we said hey look um, you know this is going from South Korea to, to uh, Doha Qatar and it's um, going to uh, be distributed that way. So we're not violating any uh, U.S. sanctions by giving the money. Well, guys, you just like detailed out how you're going to launder the money. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you you like you like gave the recipe of how you're going to launder the money in order to to go around our own U.S. restrictions. So anyway, Blinken, you know, good on you. Uh, but you just uh, you just made America less safe. Um, I'm just, I'm sorry about that. But um, we you know the second thing is Russia's uh, selling energy to China, right? So we have all of these, um, these sanctions on Russian energy, um, and a host of their um, uh, industries as well. And so really, you know, China's getting gas and diesel and fuel at, at a 20% discount, who, right. who wouldn't want a 20% discount on their fuel? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, so so just absolutely ridiculous that that uh, you know we're allowing that to happen. And but but Russia is 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 having China step up as an ally and purchase purchase that fuel. Um, and then just recently, uh, uh, North Korea is is considering selling weapons uh, to Russia in exchange for helping North Korea advance its technology for both ballistic missile technology, i.e. Intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs for nuclear weapons that they have, um, but uh, also for um, you know just conventional weapons, but also um, in exchange for food, because uh, North Korea, being the hermit kingdom, has has closed off all their borders um, since the um, the COVID nineteen pandemic, and and so they they have they're in a full up famine, and uh, so they do need. Um, uh, the food. Of course, I find it interesting that Kim can convince his citizens that, yes, I'm starving too. Right. <laughs> the fat guy. <laughs> so at the GOP debate, no one really offered a satisfactory solution. And your experience on two battlefronts, your travels, all of your reading of current events, and uh, your experience as a foreign area officer. How do you think we can end this conflict? This this is this is really uh, really hard. I mean, <clears throat> obviously you have um, you know two types of, of wars. You have high intensity conflicts, which have linear um, battle uh, linear battlefields, and then you have um, low intensity conflicts or um, you know, guerrilla warfare and, and uh, um, uh, asymmetric battle, uh, battlefields. And, you know, the, the really, there's, there's three ways. There's, there's three, three things you, you can do. You either say, look, you know, Ukraine, we're not going to support you anymore. What Russia has, Russia gets, um, and you just have to kind of suck it up. Uh, obviously, Ukraine's not going to want to do that. No, no country this ever. It'll be more tomorrow. It'll be, yeah, it'll be more tomorrow. Um, and it, and that would embolden uh, Putin as well further. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know he has a a stated goal to try and recapture the the sphere of influence that the original Soviet Union had. In fact, Putin has always lamented that the greatest geopolitical failure in the history of the world, or at least definitely in modern times, was the, the uh, downfall and breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, so he wants to try and recapture and, and uh, uh, have that uh, sphere of influence again. And that includes the Baltic states. That includes Poland. That includes Latvia, Estonia. Um, I mean, and these are NATO countries. And so um, what we do here is is uh, is super important. So that's option one. Uh, it's not desirable um, uh, for the above mentioned reasons. Option two is to continue to support Ukraine with um, um, instruction and materiel. And materiel is is just military speak for military uh, equipment. And um, but but here here's the thing on that. We have to be decisive. We have to give them. All the things that they need and have asked for, and we have to do it in a timely manner. Um, the big problem that I have seen is that we have not come up with a good strategy, or and and I, you know obviously I'm not in the Pentagon, 
right now. I'm looking at this from the either we we do have a good strategy, and the Biden administration is ineptly executing it, um, which is entirely possible, um, or the military has devised a strategy and it's being ignored, which is another another possibility, um, but which I I hope not. But when we have a request from Ukraine and they say, hey, we want um, missiles and we want ATACMs, Block 2 Alpha, uh, and we say, no, we're not going to give you ATACMs, Block 2 Alpha, um, we're going to give you the shorter range uh, rockets um, that'll come out of the HIMARS, but you can have some HIMARS. Okay, we really need Patriot. Nope, can't have Patriot. Uh, you know, that's, that's an escalation that we don't want to, that we don't want to get to, Hey, we're really have getting bombed here by Russians. A lot of civilians are dying six months later. Okay. You can have Patriot. Um, and, and we'll do that. Okay. Well, we need tanks. Nope. Nope. Can't, can't give you tanks. And meanwhile, Russia's restocking. <clears throat> yeah. Getting uh, more people to the front lines. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the, that's the big thing. So, um, you know, just trickling in uh, every three months an enabler, because again, uh, none of these things—the F-16 fighters, the the M1 Abrams, the uh, the HIMARS Block Two Alpha versus the the standard HIMARS, um, the um, uh, Bradley fighting vehicles, the Leopard Two—these th- are all enablers. They're not they're not silver bullets. So it's not, oh, they have Abrams. Well, now they're going to win. Um, but in combined arms warfare, you have to have support. You have to have uh, aerial support. You have to have infantry support. You have to have artillery support. Um, you can't just, it, none of these individual things are, are a silver bullet. But feeding them into a meat grinder uh, one at a time, uh, one enabler at a time, means you can't do combined warfare. You, you can't do it. So um, so the Biden administration and NATO needs to be decisive and say, what are all the things that we're going to give to them and give them a combined arms package that includes all at once, all at once that includes air, artillery, uh, maneuver forces, and it has to be given all at one time. And, and so, you know, just the... You know, but we don't want to make Putin mad. But then, you know, six months later (laughs) or three months later, six months later, we add the enabler uh, and say, okay, we can have the M1 Abrams. And but again, it's the 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 problem is, is as Zelensky, President Zelensky was asking for these things, he was asking for them in a specific timeline and he had to start his counteroffensive. Um, when the spring fighting season opened up and, and, uh, the, you know, the winter and the, the mud and things like that could allow for tracked, um, maneuver operations and offensive operations. But, you know, the, the characteristics of, of the offense are, you know, uh, audacity, concentration, uh, tempo and surprise. And we lit kind of uh, Putin take over, you know, some of the um, uh, the initiative in conducting the defense. And so, you know, we, we watched them build uh, a defense, a layered defense, um, so that you've got, um, you know, first, second, and third layers of, of defense. And, and I'll tell you, you know, a, 
I've only seen a deliberate defense one time in my military career. A a textbook, true to life, deliberate defense, and it was as an ROTC cadet, and I went to Fort Lewis, Washington for advanced summer field training, um, which is um, the the big field exam, six six and a half weeks long, where they they test all the ROTC cadets. Um, in, in the United States, and they, they, they phase them in. So every week a new group of cadets uh, goes through. But um, they had a, a static display, and they had a static platoon in the defense display. And again, it's the first and only time that I've ever seen uh, something like this. And so I, you know, I've been in the Army for a long time and fought in multiple wars, had you know, defensive structures that, that I had built. And, and I'm not talking about a, a Ford operating base or, you know, HESCO barriers and Jersey barriers and Alaska barriers and Texas barriers and things like that uh, made out of concrete. Uh, this is a, a, you know, you're moving in, you're occupying a defense uh, against a mechanized and or uh, light infantry. But to have the, the foxholes with overhead uh, cover, in front of uh, the, the foxholes, you have all the, the sector sketches all laid out. And these are things you're all supposed to do. You're supposed to do all these things. Um, but all the sector sketches, all of the interlocking fields of fire, um, you have your target reference points to be able to shift artillery uh, and mortars uh, off of. Um, but but then we get into the stuff that I, I haven't seen. And, and to have uh, Tanglefoot uh, put down. And Tanglefoot is, if you can imagine, barbed wire, but instead of having it be uh, uh, vertically um, uh, attached to a stake so that it, it creates a horizontal fence, if you can imagine that that fence is now lying on the ground and is about two inches uh, two to five inches above the ground, so it's like a barbed wire fence lied down on its side, but mm -hmm. then hovering it at two inches, and um, it it's crisscrossed uh, with with all the barbed wire, so that when the machine guns open up and the enemy infantry have to get down, mm -hmm. what they d are doing is they're now levitating on uh, five inches above the ground on horizontal barbed wire, and so they're having to. So it's you know if you have the if you have played football and, and you've got the the little thing where you've got the um, looks like a ladder that's on the ground and, and the 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 football players high step right. you know over it so you could do that and, and Quite but difficult to fight like that but but you're high stepping so you don't trip on the tangle foot uh, but now you know you're kind of hopping around to find where you could put your feet while you're being shot at with auto, fully automatic. Uh, you know, weapons and, and rifles and things like that. So you want to get down. So then you get down and now you're crawling, but you, you're not on the ground. You're levitating um, and being suspended by, by barbed wire. And so you're, you're crawling over the barbed wire. Anyway, not a good idea. And then prior to the tango foot, you have the triple standard concertina wire obstacles. And a lot of times uh, people mistakenly in, in the even in the military, call it a, a, a triple strand uh, concertina uh, wire obstacle, but it, the the doctrinal term is a triple standard, and it's rolls of concertina wire. And concertina wire is different than uh, it's also called razor wire. It's different than um, barbed wire. It actually has what what looks like small razor blades um, that are that are. Um, you know, intermittently uh, placed on these coils, and they are, um, there's two bottom layers, one next to each other, and then a third layer goes on top 
of that uh, to create a three uh, three layered and they have stakes that are that are in so you just can't move it um, and so you got to go through through that stuff and I just I've never seen I've never seen a deliberate defense since then until Ukraine until the counteroffensive that we're doing seeing in in 2023 that um, we allowed the Russians to do and to build a defense in depth uh, until then with their dragon's teeth and their concertina wires and their minefields it's I mean it was a lot of setup and and the the big thing is is we watched them do it we we watched them do it we could see satellite imagery and and uh, the Russians have a have a vehicle that um, it digs into the ground and it makes a uh, anti-vehicle trench, so it, it just it chews up the the ground and then it spits it out. And and they did it correctly. They put the spoil on the friendly side of the uh, of the trenches. So the the Russians know how to how to build a trench, but um, because if you if you put the spoil, which is the the loose dirt that you've dug up, if you put it on the the enemy side, then as they're coming to breach the trench, they can just push the dirt back into the trench and then drive over it. So so you want to put the spoil on the friendly side of your trench, and the Russians did do that. Um, so they did that correctly. But the the concrete barriers, the uh, the dragon's teeth, and what those are designed to do is to throw the tracks of a of a uh, armored vehicle um, and and make you have to stop because once you throw a track, you, you you have to put it back on, and um, and now you're a, a sitting duck. Uh, and then you have the the minefields and things like that. And and again, once <clears throat> once the Ukrainians breach through uh, this, then that they have to go to the the second layer of defense, and, and they're there's they're lessened, but um, you know we're you know, we're not, uh, um, you know, giving them all of the things that, that, that we need. Now, one of the things that I have not seen, and I would think that uh, we would see pictures of them, but w- why don't they have a, a Miklik? Um, and I'll put a, a picture of what a Miklik is, but it's, a, um, it's a, 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 an armored vehicle chassis that's tracked, and it has what, what looks like um, a giant fire hose, uh, all coiled up and down on 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 the back deck, and then it has a a single looks like a grappling hook, but it's a it's a rocket. And what it does is it fires and it drags this this uh, fire hose. It's a really thick f- hose um, forward, and it it scatters and it lands on the ground, and then but all of it is it's C four. It's a big giant hose of C4, and you press the button, and it blows up, and it creates a lane uh, through the minefields. And you know, I, I haven't seen any of those. What? Why? Why do they not have Miklicks where they can go and and breach these minefields and blow up the mines? I mean, that's what high intensity conflict. I mean, we we have doctrine that that says we're supposed to do that. That should have been one of the things that that they should have been given. Um, and if there's been an improvement over the Miklik, then they should have gotten the improvement as well. But uh, going and, and clearing these mines hand by hand is what is what the Ukrainians are doing. They're going on the cover of darkness, sending small teams. They go in. They're using their hands to dig up these mines, and and then. Um, in, in the morning, then the uh, they they you know retrograde out of there, and <clears throat> the um, the Ukrainians are able to drive through those lanes. But you could do it so quickly with a miklik, one one shot go. Um, 
you know, giving them the tanks, uh, you know, saying, hey, look, I need, we're going to give uh, 21 tanks. Hey, you know, Germany's going to give, um, you know, 10 Leopard 2s. Um, Estonia is going to give, um, you know, 10 Leopard 1s, you know, whatever it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. But what we what we need to do is we need to, to give um, these these uh, vehicles, um, whether they're they're tanks or armored personnel care, in military units. We need mm-hmm. to give a battalion of tanks. We need to give a brigade of tanks. We need to provide all the enablers at one time. At one time. And so it's not that hey we provided ten. NATO needs to say. We're providing three brigade combat teams, and the, this brigade combat team is, it consists of these vehicles. And then afterwards, if you want to say Estonia gets a, a shout out because they gave five, fine. Right. But but we need to be giving combat units to Ukraine, not trickling in these enablers. I'm sure planning for Zelensky with this piecemeal meal fashion is a. a planning nightmare yeah I'm, I'm sure it is as well i mean and and you know exacerbating it is um what is um as people don't see is all the stuff that's the not sexy part but is beyond important is all of the differing logistics and maintenance trains for each of these vehicles they all take different parts um now yeah. now metric wrenches uh, versus imperial wrenches or socket wrenches and, and things like that. Those, those, that. I'm not talking about that stuff, but but parts. Um, a lot of these parts uh, aren't, aren't the same. I mean, uh, the Abrams uses a gas a diesel uh, turbine engine that runs on jet fuel, okay? Um, and so it is, it is literally a jet engine, and they turned it sideways, and they put it down uh, inside the tank. And that's why it, it, that's why the tank is heavy because it has all of that horsepower to, to propel it, but it also, it's also really fast and it's super quiet, but all of the other vehicles use diesel engines. And so, um, that's a, you know, just a second and third order consideration. So each of these, these vehicles, um, you know, have different, uh, fuel requirements. Now that NATO equipment, it's all usually, um, uh, you know, run on military diesel. Um, uh, we have JP eight that, that, uh, the, um, uh, the aircraft use and the M one Abrams uses as well. But, um, but still, you know, all the different parts and, and things like that. And, and, um, you know, nobody likes to talk about it, but logistics is super mm-hmm. important, uh, super important. Um, one of the things that, um, when I was going through the infantry officer uh, basic course, I had a um, there was a, a, a captain from the Thai Royal Thai Army um, that was going through the infantry officer basic course as well as a as a foreign foreign exchange, and um, you know one of the things that that he had said is as I was talking about warfare and things like that, and and he said uh, Lieutenant McNabb, uh, every country has its heroes. What makes the United States so superior is your logistics. And, you know, that was, you know, been in the Army for less than three months, and that was pretty eye-opening uh, that, uh, you know, that they acknowledge that it's the logistics. It's getting all of your uh, enablers uh, to the fight, um, you know, as soon, soon as possible. And that's, that's, the, that's the big thing. So, I mean, you know, um, 
as as we look at at our doctrine, um, and I later became uh, a trainer for U.S. Uh, uh, officer candidates going through officer candidate school. Um, you know, we would practice all of the battle drills, um, and and you know they are uh, a battle drill is something that you don't have to um, think about. It's already mm-hmm. pre-planned. You it, it just react to uh, near ambush. Um, react to indirect fire. Uh, you don't want to, you know, as artillery is coming in, that's not the time for you to say, okay, what should we do? Um, it just, you, you, you know, it just, it's a battle drill. It becomes muscle memory. And one of the battle drills was uh, enter and clear a trench. And it was interesting um, that uh, this particular candidate said, you know, this is so stupid. Why are we learning World War II, um, you know, battle drills? This is BS. And, and at the time, I said, well, what do you think a wadi is? Um, and, and if you don't know what a wadi is, a wadi is a dry creek bed. So, you know, what does a dry creek bed look like um, that is shoulder high and you can run around in it? Uh, mm. it, it, it looks like a trench. It's exact, and that's what um, the uh, uh, Taliban and al-Qaeda were using mm-hmm. when I was fighting in Afghanistan, um, you know, as trenches, I mean, they're using them as as uh, natural uh, obstacles and and natural trenches. And so, um, but now, fast forward even more, and you know, enter and clear a trench is relevant because here we see trench warfare again, um, and, and it is important. One of the the things that um, we uh, you know had, and and General Petraeus was widely. Um, uh, touted as as the um, you know in counterinsurgency coin warfare uh, expert, and and he said you know counterinsurgency uh, warfare is PhD level warfare, um, and and there's there's that's fine that's fine to to say that I mean it is difficult because you're trying to win hearts and minds and things like that, but here's here's why. The infantry officer advanced course, and now the the maneuver officer advanced course, um, they still teach full up high intensity conflict, and we need to do that. And mm-hmm. I'm glad I'm glad that we that we still do that uh, as as a military. And this is during the 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 smack dab in the middle of all the coin uh, fighting that we were doing, and the lessons learned between a counterinsurgency fight and a um, high intensity conflict fight are gr- drastically different. If you make a mistake in a guerrilla warfare fight, a low intensity conflict, you could lose a platoon. You could lose a platoon, and and if you if you're not knowing you know where everybody is and and that you um, haven't paid attention to where the insurgency surgeons are and things like that. But if you make a mistake in a high-intensity conflict, you lose a brigade combat team, all right? And, and so you're talking about losing 40 men in a low-intensity conflict mistake versus 3,500 men and women in a brigade combat team. And so that is the reason why we always need to be, um, uh, you know, keeping track of, of what our doctrine is, uh, continuously updating it. Um, we have been... Uh, an army that's been designed uh, and fighting 
in, in a mentality for an asymmetric fight. But we need to make sure as we see these high intensity conflicts um, escalating around the world, we need to make sure that we're focused um, further than that. So the the third, the third um, uh, thing that we could do is is for the United States and NATO to, to straight up get involved. And that is probably the worst mm-hmm. of, of, all, of all the ideas. Um, but, you know, depending upon, you know, what our uh, strategic, operational, and tactical goals are, um, you know, it, it may be palatable. Now, obviously, we would want to make sure that we restricted all of our, um, uh, you know, fighting um, to um, inside Ukraine. I mean, right. obviously, not going to attack targets deep inside Russia. Um, that would just be bad because Russia would 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 be just have to uh, be obligated to uh, do the same thing to, to NATO countries, and it would quickly escalate from there. So we would be fighting um, with our hands tied behind our backs, so to speak, because we wouldn't be able to go after airfields and things like that, which which the um, Ukrainians can't very effectively now they have they have done some deep attacks and 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 gotten some airfield and 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 destroyed aircraft and awesome good on them but uh, i'm talking about you know literally cratering uh airfields so that they're non-mission capable um we're just not going to be able to, to have that so all the all the forces would have to be um you know in uh inside ukraine's original territory to include crimea I would, I would that that's Ukrainian territory, so that would be a stated goal as well. Um, so again, the third option not good because uh, that would or the least preferred, um, but you know that would uh, quickly escalate. I think, and and that would 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 be, you know, uh, just a, a huge well, a huge my problem. My concern is if the U.S. and NATO got involved, what about Russia's allies? Yeah, well? yeah. I mean, that's uh, my concern. I so. So now we have nuclear weapons in Belarus, right? So now Belarus, um, it, you know, thumped their chest and said, hey, we have nuclear weapons now. Nobody mess with us. We're ready to use them. And in reality, Russia holds the codes. They're Russia's nuclear weapons. They're stored in Belarus. And Belarus does not have the ability to, to pop off a nuke. Um, and so, um, you know, it's a little disingenuous. I guess it just won't, you know, wanted to add a couple inches uh that morning or something like that <laughs> in order to uh to to boast his puff his chest out or whatever um so belarus i mean they would have i think some of the same uh growing pains that the russian army had they used the same same uh weapons and equipment and doctrine and, and tactics and things like that so there would i think belarus uh would still have some growing pains obviously they've been watching what's been going on and and you know the russian army's learning uh, everybody everybody the world is learning um what high intensity conflict looks like again and uh, everybody is taking notes um the the biggest um takeaway is the importance of drones um have been in this conflict and all the weapons contractors are all taking notes i mean drones have always been uh, un- uavs and and things like that have always been um in the past um uh, two decades, you know, part of 
war. You have the the predators and the reapers and and things like that. But um, but I think now at the tactical level, um, the drone has just been elevated um, from both an ISR and intelligence reconnaissance surveillance role, um, but also for a direct action and a direct attack role. Um, so yeah, it's it's um uh you know it's it's interesting and I'm just sad that. We're, we're just keep trickling uh, in the in the stuff. I mean, right now the Biden administration is um, considering uh, in a positive light, so that's good, of uh, sending the attack on Block Two Alphas for the HIMARS. And what that's going to be able to do is is get them, you know, a three hundred mile range um, on on their their weapon systems instead of the about 70, 70 miles uh, what they can do now. So they so the Ukrainians can do deep attacks into Russian territory that supposedly they said, Hey, look, you know, we're not going to uh, let you do straight up uh, attacking Moscow or anything like that. But, but every single, um, uh, Navy ship in Sevaspol, uh, in, in, uh, Crimea, you know, in the black sea fleet, you know, those could all be, those could all be attacked. Um, so I just hope that it's not too late. Russia has done a very good job of um, learning how to uh, GPS jam uh, HIMARS rockets. And so they're not as precise, uh, sometimes moving and attacking actually the, the wrong the wrong target. But still, um, uh, I, I'll be honest, I'm, you know, don't know the um, the guidance system difference between the standard high Mars rocket and the attack on block two alpha um, I, I, I don't know but if it if it does rely on some of the same technology uh, Russia might be able to, to to not necessarily defeat but be able to mitigate the accuracy um, so I mean it's just you know in, the equipment just needs to arrive at the same time yep. um, but um, we need to we need to make sure that we're applying constant pressure. Um, the I think it was a mistake for um, people to decide that there are fighting seasons, and, and you hear people say fighting seasons, mm-hmm. and it, the same thing happened in Afghanistan as well. That winter was the non-fighting season, and spring here comes the fighting season, and it was you know everybody in the winter time was was holed up in in. Um, uh, Pakistan, and they were sitting by their their fires and 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 you know talking about whatever. And then when the the snow melted, then they would make their way out of the mountains of Pakistan and 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 come in and start attacking, um, and doing all their asymmetric warfare stuff. And so we need to, I think, get away from that. Um, I mean, why were we not attacking the engineering? vehicles that were conducting these these trenches i mean engineers have have three basic tasks they um have uh they concentrate on um, mobility counter mobility and survivability and um you know at the you know the entire winter and the beginning of the spring we were allowing the russians to do counter mobility um, which was all what all those obstacles are, and so, uh, and then some survivability with with um, uh, you know bunkers and, and things like that. But mm-hmm. but still, the you know engineering vehicles like that are are relatively rare. I'm not saying that that Russia has one or the, or even 
14, but still taking out trench digging vehicles that we can see from outer space as they are as they are digging a channel in the ground. Why why would you stop for fighting season and and not take out that uh, take out that vehicle? Yeah. Um, so I mean, you know, I'm just uh, you know it, it's frustrating um, because. Uh, I sit down and as an as a infantry officer, I'm like, this is how I would fight the war. And <laughs> and, you know, I understand that there's tactical, operational and strategic considerations. But um, when I see uh, something that could be fixed and that it's not being fixed, it it's very, very frustrating. Right. Well, I personally just happen to be a little biased here, but I certainly hope whoever is advising our next president has much more wisdom, much more knowledge, and much more experience, like you. Well, in the meantime, let's all pray that the situation can wait until January 2025, when the next president of the United States is sworn in. Well, and that's a that's a great point, because ultimately what Putin is going to do is he's going to play this as a waiting game. I mean, he he has a uh, an elaborate defense in depth. Um, it's slow going. Uh, he wants everyone to get um, bored. He wants everybody to be exhausted mm-hmm. and to have so he can do what he wants. Uh, so he can do what he wants and 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 to have uh, you know have fatigue and um, and you know eventually you know people are um, going to want to um, uh, to stop giving you know, weapons and equipment uh, to Ukraine. Um, Putin has even, uh, in a press release, uh, he had an economic um, uh, meeting in uh, eastern Russia um, right before uh, Kim uh, Jong-un made his way from North Korea into Russia to meet with with Putin. And in that, he talked about um, the, the... former president trump's indictments and and he he loves he loves the um the confusion and the mm-hmm. the um the distractions the distractions and things like Don't that pay attention <clears throat> to us over and, here and and he he got took it as a chance to lecture the world and lecture the United States about what democracy is. And, you know, it's just, it's just a distraction for us. And, and so he said, you know, that, you know, how can the United States be a bastion of democracy when they, they use their democracy to go after their political opponents? And, you know, that's something that, that, uh, some, uh, people have said that this is literally a weaponization of, of, uh, an administration to go after the previous administration. But, when Putin, um, it, you know, gets to say it as well, it's not as it's not as humorous. It's not as humorous, mm-hmm. and and so he he is waiting for fatigue to set in on our side, um, so that he can have freedom of maneuver. But um, but thank you for that compliment, Kimberly. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, this concludes this segment. Please stay tuned after these messages. Hi everyone, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our show with all the stories we share, we would love your support. And it's as easy as clicking that subscribe or follow button. This will ensure you never miss an episode and keeps us bringing you these important stories. Your support makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast family. Thanks, and keep tuning in. 
Welcome to another segment of the Azimuth Podcast. I am your host, Kimberly McNabb. And I'm Barrett McNabb. In this segment, we will be dis- discussing the push for green energy. But before we dive into all the different facets of the, as Vivek Ramaswamy termed it, the green agenda, we would like to cover the story in the news. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm made headlines on having her staff block a charging station for EVs with a combustible engine vehicle so that she would be assured of a place to charge. Blocking an EV charging station with combustible engine vehicles is a practice known as icing, which is illegal in some places like D.C., but fortunately for the energy secretary, is not illegal in Georgia. Yeah, I mean, seriously. Uh, I mean, the energy <laughs> secretary plans this trip in her EV so that she can document it on TikTok or something like that, and she has four staffers driving gasoline-powered uh, vehicles that are, you know, just just playing leapfrog uh, to, to snag up all, all of the spaces. Um, I mean, it's a 600-mile road trip with their staffers. It's a publicity stunt to highlight that one can have a fun road trip in an EV. Um, but, man, how out of touch uh, is she and the other uh, politicians in the D.C. area, um, you know, if only the rest of us had an entourage uh, to make sure that we could make it to our destinations safely. And again, to have the audacity to take a gasoline-powered vehicle that you're not going to utilize the EV charger and you're just going to block it um, while a family who is who is in an electric vehicle and it was a, a husband, wife, and a, and a baby and needed a charge, and it's a hot day. Um, they needed the spot more, and I mean- It's it, August in Georgia. It's hot. <laughs> uh, it's hot. It's hot. And and so um, the staffers wouldn't move. I mean, it, th- this is wrong all the way around, but, but let's just say the staffer, hey, hey, secretary, how far out are you? Oh, you're two hours out. Okay, well, how about I move? So you can get a little bit of this this stuff. So no, they're like nope, we're we're occupying it. So the family calls the police, mm-hmm. and and then all of a sudden it was, hey, you know what? Turns out maybe we could share it. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is just this is an absolute joke. When I when I first saw it, and, until I actually saw um, the energy secretary in in the vehicles, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Um, but. This is, you know, a town, like you said, just outside of Augusta, Georgia. And despite having the Masters Golf Tournament, um, the area is pretty remote. Yeah. I mean, you've got Fort Gordon there, um, but, but which is the home of the U.S. Army's Signal Corps. Um, but there really probably aren't a lot of charging options around. No, absolutely not. Well, as outrageous as this is, I am from Georgia, and I've planned a lot of road trips, you know, with our moves as a military family and in planning itineraries to get to all, all the marathons that I've done in all 50 states, most of which I've had to drive to. So what confuses me is this road trip. 600 miles would be like less than two tanks of gas in a normal combustible engine. And, and even in an EV is what, two charges? So why was this scheduled for four days? She, did she have press conferences along the way? 
She had to do TikToks. Um, oh, okay. There. Uh, but then the trip was from Charlotte, North Carolina, to Memphis, Tennessee. So the first map, if you pull up Google Maps, it goes all the way up from North Carolina to Nashville, then over to Memphis. Okay, well, what are other driving options? Okay, you go from Charlotte, North Carolina, down through Greenville, South Carolina, crossing into Atlanta, and then, you know, back up on your way to Memphis. So even crossing from Greenville, South Carolina, dipping towards Atlanta, you're still a really far away from Augusta, Georgia. So I'm like, I don't understand why she was even close to this town, but the, the logical reasoning of someone from D.C. So there you go. Well, I tell you what, it's always fun to see another story highlighting how out of touch politicians really are uh, than the average American. So good on this family for calling her out. Yeah. And to think, in California, Governor Newsom has regulation that by 2035, all cars sold will be electric vehicles. And last week, CNN reported that the U.S. Department of Energy will push the auto industry's transition to electric vehicles with $12 billion in loans and grants to assist in the conversion of automakers into manufacturing for electric vehicles. So the administration has a policy proposal that would require EVs to account for two-thirds of new cars sold by 2032. It's not that far off. It's not that far off. I mean, you know, when you... When you think of, hey, six months, hey, you know, two years, hey, five years, hey, nine years. It's, it's nine years away. It's, it's uh, um, not that far off at all. Uh, but first, let's talk about uh, something interesting, uh, you know, seemingly innocuous, um, and even the butt of many comedians' jokes, plastic straws. Did you know these so-called green utensils might not be as eco-friendly as we think? That's right. Researchers in Belgium found that paper straws, often touted as eco-friendly alternative, contain harmful forever chemicals known as PFAS or per-polyfluoralkyl substances and refer to a collection of long-lasting chemicals that take a very long time to slowly break down in the environment. And there are health risks associated with PFAS. There's an increase risk of some cancers, including prostate, kidney, and testicular cancers, reduced ability of the body's immune system to fight infections, including reduced vaccine responses, interference with the body's natural hormones. And it's not just about health. According to the EPA, PFAS can also persist in the environment for a very long time and end up in the blood of people and animals, as well as air, water, soil, and in low levels in food, packaging, and household products. Surprisingly, these chemicals are found in various types of straws. They were found in 90% of the paper straws and 75% in plastic straws. So we opened discussing the push for electric vehicles, but currently they account for less than 1% of the vehicles on the road. I'd say that the Energy Secretary story put a little light as to why that is. Well, Barrett, I'd say there is even more to it than just range. Electric vehicles come with a hefty price tag, averaging around $66,000, which is $18,000 more than the average combustible 
engine and more than some people make. And the strain on the electrical grid can't be ignored. The grid, especially in summer and hot places like here in Houston, are already strained with the government telling people to keep their AC at 77. Well, they can enjoy their terrarium. But plugging an EV to your home is like adding another air conditioner. Yeah, a whole nother air conditioner. That's crazy. And it's a real concern, especially for those in areas with high electricity costs already. Isn't it bad enough that 20 million Americans are already behind in paying their electric bills as it is? Again, that's absolutely, that's crazy. Um, but utility companies are also um, facing significant costs uh, because they have to invest in the upgrades and the infrastructure in order to support the growing number of EVs. Utility companies will need to add $5,800 in upgrades for every new EV in the next eight years. That is insane. And what about the charging stations? A study found that one-third of San Francisco EV charge stations were not working. So not only are they few and far between, but not all of them are going to work once you get there. And what about adding them to apartment complexes? How's that going to work? Who pays for the shared energy there? <laughs> if you have a hard enough time uh, getting landlords to fix the units, good luck with that. Yeah. If you have 200 units, are you going to have 200 charging stations that work all of the time? I think it could be difficult enough to get landlords to get re anything repaired, just like you said. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not just personal vehicles either. The EPA also wants large trucks, as in 18-wheelers, to be electric vehicles by 2032 as well. A clean diesel long-haul tractor costs between $180,000 to $200,000, as it is. An electric version costs $300,000 or more, so basically double the price. And to boot, 95% of the trucking companies are small businesses, so you're really kicking down the little guys. Yeah, and if you're thinking charging a little EV is an issue, Energy Secretary, imagine charging a long-haul tractor. The charge of an electric truck is 10 hours and can go 150 to 300 miles, while a diesel can go six times further. So you'd have to add 10 hours of charging six times for the same trip. The same vehicle would also have to add 8,000 pounds of weightable uh, batteries for the same vehicle, which means that you're going to be able to carry less cargo because the Department of Transportation has maximum limits on what a truck and other vehicles can weigh. Yeah. Has anyone noticed those way stations on the highway? Those long-haul tractors are regulated to not go over a certain weight, so they'd have to carry less cargo. Between taking longer for the same trip and carrying less food... This would drastically increase prices. Imagine... In Everyday Americans are paying $700 more a month for food for the same household as two years ago. How many times higher do you think groceries would be if this cost is passed on down to the consumer? Yeah, because 70% of all goods are trucked in America. So these increased prices would affect a large portion of the economy. In the best-case scenario, with everything running smoothly, truckers are also worried about lithium batteries in extreme heat, as, such as Nevada, and extreme cold, such as the northeastern winters. These conditions can kill the lifespan of lithium batteries. 
Now, not using gas sounds like a great idea, but what does it take to actually make the electric vehicle? The batteries require cobalt, with 70% of global supply coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo. NPR describes the conditions of mining for cobalt as modern-day slavery. Workers use stretches of rebar to scrounge the earth in trenches to get the cobalt. Cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe for these workers. In addition, millions of trees have to be cut down for the space to mine the cobalt. Now, one has to ask, how can we power the electric vehicles? Electricity does not come from nothing. Where does the electricity come from? Fossil fuel-based power plants create 60% of the electric grid, with 20% coming from nuclear, solar, or wind. And I tell you what, the, you know, when, you, when you're plugging in the, the vehicle, and, and I've seen memes where, you know, plugging in uh, into the wall socket your your EV and then uh, in the background a coal-fired plant you know you know kicks on so that uh, you can you can get that so um, my favorite is a picture of an EV charged to a gas-powered generator and it says it's like when a vegan secretly eats meat ah yeah that makes sense <laughs> well in Germany wind and hydropower output are just too low to make up for shutting down three nuclear power plants and for the Russian-Ukraine war curbing gas exports. So Germany, as well as other parts of Europe, have been burning lignite. Now this is called the dirtiest and most polluting version of coal for energy. And in other parts of Europe, they're using wood for energy. Yeah, like man make fire ancient times. (laughs) Technically, this is called biomass power, and it's counted and subsidized as zero emissions renewable energy. As a result, European utilities now import tons of wood from the United States forests every year, and Europe's supposedly eco-friendly economy now generates more energy from burning wood than from wind and solar combined. This transition away from fossil fuels has sparked a boom in the U.S. wood pellet industry, which has built 23 mills throughout the South over the past decade and is actually trying to brand itself as a 21st century green energy business. Its basic argument is that the carbon released while trees are burning shouldn't count because it's eventually offset by the carbon absorbed while other trees are growing. But couldn't that be said of fossil fuel too? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's kind of laughable because, you know, small trees have fewer leaves and fewer leaves are absorbing less carbon. So I don't see how cutting down a fully, fully realized and mature tree in order to turn it into wood pellets but wait we planted an acorn and and so there's a little teeny tree that's that's going to grow up it's not it's not a even steven swap it's not an even steven swap so i mean i i just i just don't understand i but i tell you what i think most people would prefer something that's actually clean like solar panels we often don't think of them as the future of clean energy but are they as efficient as we believe Well, the reality is that solar panels and wind turbines are less efficient than fossil fuels. 
Plus, there's a need for smart grids to optimize their power production. Comprehensive advanced smart grids with the capability to swiftly adjust energy supply according to demand, maximizing the use of clean energy sources while minimizing reliance on fossil fuels, do not exist, which poses a challenge to energy service providers. And let's not forget about the environmental impact. The production of photovoltaic cells for solar panels often involve the use of hazardous chemicals, which, if not managed responsibly, can have detrimental effects on the local ecosystems and wildlife. Large-scale solar farm installations often require land clearing, which can further disrupt native plants and animals. In an ideal scenario, all solar panels would be efficiently recycled, but solar panel recycling remains a really complex and costly process. Thus, a significant portion of discarded solar panels end up in e-waste facilities where valuable materials like aluminum, glass, copper are salvaged, while the remaining components are typically shredded and disposed of in landfills. Obviously, they leach into the soil and and table water and Mm -hmm. things like that afterwards. But, you know, with all the upstream, midstream, and downstream um, uh, production process for solar panels and and for um, lithium-ion batteries, it you know it just it's a horrible um, environmental impact. But for solar panels and wind turbines, Bloomberg reports that getting to zero carbon by 2050 would require a land area equal to five South Dakotas to develop and run clean power to run all EV homes. However, in places like off the coast of Cape Cod, people do not want their ocean views spoiled by wind turbines. Not it's, my backyard. It, it's the old not my backyard uh, argument. Also, according to foreign policy, moving to a carbon-free energy future requires the extraction and mining of 34 million tons of copper, 40 million tons of lead, 50 million tons of zinc, 162 million tons of aluminum, and 4.8 billion tons of iron. Yet no one wants to allow the dirty act of mining to occur. As for wind turbines alone, there's a graveyard of wind turbines in Casper, Wyoming. It's the final resting place for 1,000 fiberglass turbine blades. And these blades have reached the end of their 25-year working life. Each one will be cut into three, and then the pieces will be stacked and buried. About two gigawatts worth of turbines will be refitted in 2019 and 2020, and disposing of them in an environmentally friendly way is a growing problem. Well, Vivek Ramaswamy said during the first GOP debate that green policies kill more people than climate change. Now, why on earth would he say that? Is he a conspiracy theorist? Well, there could be support for that claim in two recent instances. Hawaiian Electric acknowledged in 2019 that it needed to work on preventing power lines from emitting sparks. However, in three years, it has made minimal effort. Instead, Hawaiian Electric's focus has been on transitioning to renewable energy sources following a surge in oil prices in 2008. As the island heavily relies on petroleum imports for 80% of its energy production. In 2015, State legislatures enacted legislation mandating that Hawaii derive 100% of its electricity from renewable sources by 2045. So, in this instance, dedication to renewable energy, Hawaiian Electric overlooked essential 
wildfire prevention and thus contributed to the wildfires. Everyone needs to look at the bigger picture. You know what's not green? Turning an island into ash and sending so much smoke into the air and killing more than 100 people and who knows how many animals. Well, speaking of wildfires, I will often read that climate change caused any particular wildfire. The Yosemite wildfire in 2022 was initially blamed on climate change and had celebrity climate activists like Al Gore, here we go again, screaming climate change was actually caused by a 71-year-old man, Edward Wackerman. In 2018, the National Geographic attributed 95% of California's wildfires were from human-related activity, whether it's from power lines or campfires. Even the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions states that more than 80% of wildfires are started by human activity, not by climate change. The wildfires that sent smoke into New York City a few months ago have also been attributed to human activity. Now, while warmer temperatures do make the conditions worse, Fair. climate change does not start wildfires. Well, that wraps up our segment on green energy. We hope it sheds some light on the complexities and challenges associated with renewable technologies. And remember, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It is essential to weigh the costs and the benefits of everything, including environmental initiatives. Indeed. Going green isn't just about good intentions. It's about understanding real-world implications and the cost. you got to think about the second and third order effects. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining us on Azimuth Podcast. Stay tuned after these messages. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy our show with all the stories we share, we would love your support. And it's as easy as clicking that subscribe or follow button. This will ensure you never miss an episode and keeps us bringing you these important stories. Your support makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast family. Thanks, and keep tuning in. Welcome back to another exciting segment of Azimuth Podcast. I am Kimberly McNabb. And I'm Barry McNabb. In this segment, we're going to continue our coverage of the presidential candidates with Vivek Ramaswamy. We'll explore his background, his key stances, strengths, weaknesses, and his reception within the political landscape. First, let's watch his presidential candidacy video. We're in the middle of a national identity crisis. Faith, patriotism, and hard work have disappeared, only to be replaced by new secular religions like COVIDism, climatism, and gender ideology. We hunger to be part of something bigger than ourselves, yet we cannot even answer the question of what it means to be an American. Today, the woke left preys on that vacuum. They tell you that your race, your gender, and your sexual orientation govern who you are, what you can achieve, and what you're allowed to think. This is psychological slavery, and that has created a new culture of fear in our country that has completely replaced our culture of free speech in America. And that is why today I am announcing my run for President of the United States. This isn't just a political campaign. This is a cultural movement to create a new American dream for the next generation. To me, the American dream means you believe in merit that you get ahead in this country, not on the color of your skin, but on the content of your character and your contributions. 
It means you believe the people who we elect to run the government are the ones who actually run the government, not a federal bureaucracy that grows like a national cancer that is now metastasizing to the private sector. It means that the best ideas win instead of getting censored. It means you don't have to choose between speaking your mind freely and putting food on the dinner table. It means you believe these ideals form the backbone of the greatest nation on earth that the rest of the world still looks up to as its example. Not the Soviet Union in the last century and not communist China in this one either. That is the new American dream. Ask yourself if you believe in these ideas. I think most of you do. I think most of you believe your neighbors do too. Though you can't be sure because you don't feel free to talk about it anymore. You might disagree with each other about corporate tax rates or about whether ivermectin treats COVID, but those are details. We still agree on our nation's most fundamental principles. At least most of us do. Yet the goal of the ruling party in this country is to convince us that we are divided. Why? So they can accumulate more power for themselves. Well, you know what? I have a dream that we can be one people again. We have obsessed so much over our diversity and our differences that we forgot all the ways we're really just the same as Americans bound together by a common set of ideals that brought together a divided, diverse, headstrong group of people 250 years ago. And I believe deep in my bones that those ideals still exist and I am running for president to revive them. E pluribus unum, from many, one. That is the dream that won the American Revolution. That is the dream that reunited us after the Civil War. That is the dream that won us two world wars and the Cold War. That is the dream that still gives hope to the free world today. And if we can revive that dream over fractious group identity, then nobody in the world, not a nation, not a corporation, not a virus is gonna defeat us. That is what American exceptionalism is all about. And that is what we will need to revive to save this great nation. That's my favorite one so far. It was good. Yeah. That was inspirational. It was full of motivation. It was full of promise. It was, you know, unity. Yes. Instead of divisiveness. I, that was, that was the, the best video that we've seen so far, in my opinion, uh, of, of all of the presidential candidates that we've been reviewing. It was very good. I noticed he didn't say, my name is Vivek Ramaswamy and I'm running for president. Oh, I missed that part. That. But anyway, uh, so let's talk more about him. Yeah. Uh, Vivek was born in Cincinnati in 1985, so he's actually younger than I am, uh, to Indian immigrant parents. Uh, Ramaswamy has had a remarkable journey from Harvard College to Yale Law School. One of the key factors that propelled Vivek Ramaswamy into the spotlight is his stance as an anti-woke activist. He has been vocal about opposing what he perceives as a new secular religion, like wokeism, climatism, and gender ideology, which he mentioned in his video. It sounds like a lot of isms. Yes. He's anti-ism just like me. Uh, his stance against those ideologies has struck a chord with conservatives who believe that these issues have dominated national discourse. And now let's delve into Ramaswamy's positions on various issues. He is known for his pro-fossil fuel stance, 
arguing that fossil fuels are essential for human flourishing. He advocates for a binary view of gender and imposes trans kids' participation in sports and gender-affirming surgeries. It is also noteworthy that Ramaswamy has proposed banning social media for individuals under 16. Sounds good to me. And raising the voting age to 25 with exceptions. These views certainly set him apart from other candidates. A significant departure from mainstream Republican foreign policy was his stance on Ukraine. Ramaswamy proposed that in exchange for Putin exiting Russia and China's military partnership, parts of Ukraine under Moscow's control could remain and a promise that Ukraine would never join NATO. However, his views on Israel sparked sharp criticism during the first GOP debate. He argued that Israel should not receive regular financial aid and proposed an Abraham Accords 2.0 to encourage normalization of deals between Israel and other countries. It is a departure from the typical Republican stance. Now, Barrett, given your experience at the embassy in Morocco and other um, trips, our visits to Israel, uh, what are your thoughts on these foreign policy positions? Well, it, it is interesting because um, Israel is, is uh, you know, a, an ally that is in the Middle East. You know, Israel's our friend. I mean, they, they've created uh, Iron Dome. Um, they've uh, uh, um, created technology that is, um, I believe it's the, the trophy system um, that, that's mounted on M1 Abrams tanks that um, uh, identifies, tracks, targets, um, and then destroys incoming anti-tank missiles. So that technology is is being added to our equipment. So I mean, we we get we get a return on on our investment. investment. Yeah. So yeah, and, and so instead of view, having his view of we're giving aid, like I mean, come on, some of these countries we give money to, we really don't get much back, but we do to Israel. So you think that he need, just needs to change his perspective? Yeah. I mean, I mean, he just needs to. You know, he's he's. He's young. Um, and, and he's not in, in the office, so yeah, he's not. You, you may not know until you get in there. Right, exactly. Well, on the border front, Ramaswamy has put forward a series of policy proposals, including use of the military, including drones, to secure the southern border, holding the CCP accountable for COVID-19, achieving semiconductor independence, and banning U.S. businesses from expanding in China until the CCP stops cheating. And, and conducting industrial espionage mm-hmm. as, as well. Well, his stance on using the military to combat Mexican drug cartels and banning U.S. businesses from expanding in China until the Chinese Communist Party stops cheating is particularly noteworthy. Again, because we have all of these instances where we have Chinese citizens let's go ahead and call them spies, um, infiltrating into the United States. We have um, instance after instance after instance of Chinese uh, tourists um, blowing through military checkpoints and, uh, and trying to go deeper into um, uh, military installations, uh, saying, look, you know, we've got reservations uh, and our hotel is, is over there. Um, you know, they have photo equipment. Uh, you've got... Um, uh, uh, Chinese nationals that are caught scuba diving in 
murky, brackish water off of rocket testing areas uh, with photography equipment. I mean, it, it's not like they're on the Great Barrier Reef and looking at lots of coral and things like that. <laughs> they're, they're there for, for a specific purpose. Um, so obviously we have the, the weather balloon that uh, was, is truly a, a surveillance uh, program that um, was going over the United States um, uh, last year. And, you know, it just, it's nonstop. Um, the hacking uh, for computers, the, um, the two Navy sailors that were, um, uh, you know, used money to, to get them to um, give Navy secrets, um, and, you know, just absolutely tragic, uh, the amount that's going on. So, I mean, you know, He's right. He's right. right. There needs yep. to be there needs to be the Chinese Communist Party needs to be top top of the list. Absolutely. Another proposal of his that has stirred discussion is his call for the pardon of defendants of politicized prosecutions, including Trump, McKee, and peaceful January six protesters. Now let's assess the strengths and weaknesses of Vivek Ramaswamy as presidential candidate. One of his significant strengths is his business acumen. Mm -hmm. As a self-made millionaire, he founded successful companies um, that were in the biotech sector. And he, uh, you know, these became billion-dollar companies. Mm -hmm. um, his background as a working-class American resonates with many voters seeking a fresh perspective. On the flip side, his lack of political experience could be perceived as a weakness. Additionally, self-funding a campaign can demonstrate commitment, but candidates who rely solely on personal funds sometimes struggle to gain broad support. Yeah, from the last statistic that I saw, and, and I, I need to look at my numbers again, but his campaign had uh, $16 million in it, and he had loaned the campaign 15 of the $16 million. Um, now, he got a big boost of support uh, post the um uh, the GOP debate, but um, we'll we'll see, you know, what how that's going to go. Now, how has he been received within the Republican Party and the broader political landscape? His energetic and unconventional campaign style has garnered significant attention. He's appeared on various podcasts, news programs, and even launched his own podcast, The Vivek Show. Nevertheless, he faces significant challenges in a race dominated by former President Donald Trump. During the first GOP debate, he praised Trump as the greatest president, leaving some to wonder why is he running against Trump at all? He'll need to convince Trump supporters why they should choose him instead. Another challenge is his relatively new presence in politics. He's faced tough questioning from Mike Pence, Chris Christie, and Nikki Haley during the first debate, signaling that they viewed him as a threat, which really was a surprise to me. I really thought, and so did Governor DeSantis, thought that everybody was going to be coming after him, and he was more than happy to step out of the way and let mm -hmm. Ramaswamy take all yeah. the hits. Additionally, recent controversies such as edits to his Wikipedia biography and alleged contradictions in his past comments have raised questions about his transparency. He has also had a few contradictions pointed out by critics. Contradiction number one. During an interview on August 1st, conducted on X, formerly known as Twitter, Vivek was asked about his support for Bernie Sanders' 2020 legislation, Mass for All. At the time, he responded with a firm, no. However, it is worth noting that in 2020, Vivek had tweeted that the idea was sensible. In response to this, 
His website explains that his initial response was meant to be flippant, and his views have evolved as he considered the changing facts. Contradiction number two, Vivek recently expressed his view that the debate is an opportunity to introduce himself to the country, and he indicated he had no issue with the former president skipping the debate. This marks a vast departure from his earlier position in May when he stated in a Fox radio interview that it would be fundamentally uncourageous for Trump to refuse to participate in the debate. Contradiction number three. Vivek is really just a secret Trojan horse for George Soros. Okay. However, this claim is unfounded. When Vivek was 24 years old, he received a standard scholarship to attend graduate school. The scholarship was not funded by George Soros, who backs funds that invest in ESG-related legislation, but was sponsored by a relative of George Soros, Paul Soros, It came with no strings attached, being a generic scholarship. Vivek distinguished himself from other candidates by voluntarily releasing 20 years of tax returns, challenging his competitors to do the same. This act demonstrates an extraordinary commitment to transparency. Now, I did hear a suspicion the other day. What if he is a Trump plant to take votes away from other candidates like DeSantis? But who knows the answer to that one. Contradiction number four. Some critics have alleged that Vivek is associated with Big Pharma and has profited from a failed Alzheimer's drug. It is true that Vivek was involved with the development of an Alzheimer's drug through one of Roy Vent's subsidiaries called Exovent. However, like the vast majority of drugs tested for Alzheimer's disease, this drug failed. Unlike most of Royvent's subsidiaries, which achieved remarkable success, and the parent company, Royvent, which is currently a nearly $10 billion public company, Exovent's drug termination resulted in a failure. So the subsidiary with the drug is not the reason why he was able to walk away with the profit, but all the other companies were. Thus, claims that Vivek profited from this failure are untrue. And contradiction number five. In his public statements, Vivek has often mentioned that he voted for the first time in 2020. However, in July, he did admit to the Washington Examiner that he had, in fact, voted for the first time in 2004. And as he continues his presidential campaign, his unconventional approach and his policy proposals have certainly captured the attention of many. Whether he can translate this into political success remains to be seen. Well, we will be keeping a close eye on his campaign, providing you with insights into the ever-evolving political landscape. Thank you for joining us on this exploration of Vivek Ramaswamy's presidential candidacy. Stay informed, stay engaged, and stay curious. Until next time, have a great day. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy our show with all the stories we share, We would love your support. And it's as easy as clicking that subscribe or follow button. This will ensure you never miss an episode and keeps us bringing you these important stories. Your support makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast family. Thanks, and keep tuning in.